Hello, and welcome to League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I am your host. This episode was recorded on June 3rd, 2021, when I was fortunate enough to be joined by Owen Leader. Unfortunately, Owen and I lost connection a few times through our conversation. Not our loving connection, but the one used to telecommunicate. Don't worry, our love for each other remains as strong as ever. It is my goal here to provide you with an unedited, uncensored experience. But during this episode, I was forced to splice out certain sections of radio silence as to not ruin the flow for listeners. Owen has recently graduated from King's University, receiving an honors in psychology with a minor in English. As part of his honors, Owen conducted research into drug addiction and public perception of drug addiction, which will be the main focus for our conversation today. This is a vast topic. Therefore, we are unable to cover it to exhaustion. Fortunately, Owen gives an impressive analysis and summarization of a broad and intricate body of literature. Owen and I discuss drug safety, the war on drugs, legalization versus decriminalization, harm reduction, treatment, and much more. For the latter half, Owen and I discuss psychedelics, where they came from, where they are going, and why a conservative approach is likely wise when introducing a mind-altering substance to the general public. On this note, I feel it is important to address these powerful substances. Introducing anything into a complex system can have profound benefits alongside dire consequences. The psychedelic literature appears to be promising beyond what anyone would have thought. Counter to common sense, I believe this should heed more strenuous caution. If you are looking to partake in psychedelics, understand the potential risks as they do exist. Ideally, avoid psychoactive substances if you have a family history of psychosis or mental health disorders. Wait until your mind is fully developed, tailor a proper environment both mentally and physically, and proceed with caution. These are not toys, and once the box has been opened, it cannot be shut. Beware of unearned knowledge. Risk and harm are different concepts, often conflated. You walk into a new room and discover a revolver on the table. Upon seeing it for the first time, you pick it up, put it to your head, and pull the trigger. You've survived. Your behavior was rife with risk, but lacked the consequences of harm. Please, practice any drug use in a safe environment and research the negative consequences more thoroughly than the positive. We only have one shot at this thing called life. An addiction or brain alteration can be an express ticket to a lifelong hell that you never would have imagined to be possible. I've written something that I hope can add a layer of complexity to the emotional milieu of this episode. As always, I hope that this episode is of benefit to you. Thank you. She enters her temple of worship, downtrodden and disinhibited, feeling emptier now than ever before. Sadly, she is not empty. The walls of her lonesome silo reach as high as the foundation penetrates deep. She is solitary in the cylindrical church. Demons cannot corner her here, nor can angels lift her. She does not want this. This is no place of God, but a place of worship all the same. Stained glass shimmers all around her, crimson and vibrant under the light of a waning crescent. As she unloads herself, the glass cracks and breaks under her weight. She is heavier than she feels. This is all she knows. Her pastor enters the room. She is ashamed that he is not a friend, but a means to an end. In the silo, every friend is a means, and if they are not a means, then they are not a friend. He hands her sacrament and cup. These things will deliver her from suffering. It's dirty, she nearly spits, but she catches her tongue. It doesn't matter, and she knows that. This is all she is. She sparks her votive, Finally, a light in the dark. It elicits a foreign warmth in her bones, bones frosted by vicissitude, by existence. She warms her medicine. As it heats, she prays. Why am I doing this? 
please help me to help myself. Her brew boils and she stops. Prayer can wait, the shepherd cannot. She wants help. This chapel smells of vinegar. She looks at her arm. They used to be blue, she recounts. Rivers of life flowing through her. A vast ocean of enchantment was her being, once teeming with hope and life. Now, they are simply vessels for medicine, black and tarred. She's more familiar with the holes that she has made than with the marks of beauty born under her. Her gaze lowers to the ground, where she spots a stranger reflected in the glass. She does not recognize this stranger, this person now lost at sea. She doesn't want this. She quivers as cold pierces her skin. The tourniquet releases her arm from its clutches. Just this one last time, she whispers, as she pushes a warm hug of unconditional love throughout her body. The only time that she feels love is when that hug courses through her veins, embracing her universally. Finally. She is revivified, a child again. The veil is lifted, the demons are gone. In that moment, she is raised from inferno, released from her earthly bonds to soar through the heavens. She missed this place. A stray kick from her stomach reminds her that she is not empty. Please, she exhales, just this one last time. I'm sitting here today with Owen Leader. Owen has just graduated from King's University in Edmonton with a major in psychology and a minor in English. He's just finished his honors research project on drug addiction. So today we're going to be discussing drug addiction, the perception on drugs, the physical impact of drugs on a person. And I think later we'll get into treatment and the war on drugs, maybe a little bit about psychedelics. And we'll probably talk about free will at some point. And how that all ties in together. So, Owen, oh, thanks a lot for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this for a long time now. It's been a long time in the making. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, I've been very excited just messaging you back and forth, deciding what to talk about. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm very happy to be here. Mm -hmm. So why did you decide to do research into drug addiction? What was the, what was um, the reasoning for your research project? Sorry. So we have at King's um, part of the honors program, you have to do a research project in the final year of your undergrad. Uh, and the summer before that, your final year, the, the kind of psych department sends you an email. They're like, what are you interested in researching? What are you interested in doing? Who are you interested in working with? And I had just come out of a brain and behavior class and I had a lot of fun doing that. So a lot of neuroscience, biological psychology and I, I kind of wanted to pursue that further so I just said I was interested in, in neuroscience and basically whatever you guys can do I, I would love to do that and I got partnered with my professor uh, Dr. Heather Loy and she's a she's a biological psychologist and and she thought it would be good to explore addictions a little more because it is a very difficult and at times very abstract um, phenomena that does require a lot of uh, psychological as well as neuroscientific data to kind of fully encapsulate it. So I was, I was partnered with another psych student and she did the uh, psychological side while I did the more neuroscientific side. 
cool. Sorry, I'm smiling. I'm just so excited. This is this is so much fun. I'm, I'm pumped, man. This is gonna be great. Yeah, I, I don't get the opportunity to talk about this very often, but it's very often, but it's a just such a cool topic. Um, you you and I had discussed how you were largely influenced by Gabor Mate and his book in the realm of the hungry ghost. Yeah. How did you how did you run into that book, Correct. and what was the impact on you? It was uh, first recommended by my professor, uh, just kind of as a starting point. But as we kind of dove deeper into it, uh, or should I say more myself, my, my partner didn't dive as deep into it as I did per se, but she did a little bit. Um, you get this feeling that um, it's a deeper and more complicated issue than anyone could ever imagine and and that's because to our knowledge the human brain is the most complex piece of machinery in the observable universe so far and, and a lot of times it's a it seems like it's akin to magic and how it, it it grows and how it um interacts with the world and so it just had uh, this profound impact on me to see how a healthy brain works and then when you introduce an addictive substance or a behavior just how out of kilter it can get and just how abstract and just even philosophically just strange it becomes and so that was that was our starting point and uh, then the rest of it we just launched from there and it was just yeah it was very very difficult read in the sense of implications Yes, but sorry, what was the last um, thing you said? You kind yeah, of very fast. It was it's very fascinating, and it, it led a lot of our research, um, on my half anyway, into um, models of addiction, uh, even how to help. Can you help? And um, just everything from there kind of started with Gabor Mate. Were you able to find any answers to those questions? What were what were the findings of your research? What were things that surprised you and took you through a loop? Because I know that a lot of the literature on drug addiction is somewhat counterintuitive. You wouldn't expect the things that end up coming up. And I think is a good example mm -hmm. of that. The layout of the war on drugs is so counter to, it is, it is appeared to be so counter to what you would actually want to do if you were to eliminate drugs or eliminate drug stigma and for the betterment of the people that are influenced by drug addiction. So what are things that you learned that surprised you and what are things that you came away with with the change perspective? Well, the more, the more you read into it, the more questions you certainly get because it, it is so cyclical and counterintuitive, like you said. So, um, it, it, can, it all starts in development. Um, that's where the kind of the, the bigger chances of you being more likely to become addicted later in life versus less likely to become addicted later in life kind of really start to take shape. And so a growing brain, uh, it, it's just, it's a fascinating little blank slate that requires so much uh, taking in information and then the, the nerves in your brain do stuff with that. Uh, it's called synaptic pruning. So you take an information, it's a blank slate. This is what allows human beings to be uh, so intelligent. If, if you wanna call us that, 
is that this synaptic pruning takes place based on your environment. So a baby is born with roughly two to three trillion nerve cells in the brain, which is half or a double that of an adult brain. And what they do with that is they, they experience life, they experience their environment, and then uh, processes that they do more, such as say like interacting with a toy, you know, putting a shape in a hole or whatever, doing doing those tasks over and over again, speaking parts of the brain um, involved with speaking and singing and writing. The more you do that, uh, the more the stronger those neural synapses get and the weaker ones are pruned away. So it can make room for those synapses to get stronger, as well as room for new synapse, synapses to go in there as well. And that can, it's so fickle that um, a lot of things come into play like trauma or, or neglect, something as simple as a mom not making eye contact with their baby or, or or having this kind of this mother-child relationship can can completely skew and and drastically change that synaptic pruning, and so the, the brain is it's very plastic, and if it's not emotionally and uh, physically nurtured uh, over and over and over again, it, it falls into these these terrible loops. Um, and I meant I, I watched your video on. Uh, the, the wheel of samsara there mm -hmm. and um i noticed you talked about the hyper uh, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis mm -hmm. which is um it works in conjunction with the locus coriolis norepinephrine system or the lcne yeah. and these two brain systems are are vital pieces of the stress response or the fight or flight symptom or system so when sense organs detect something they perceive as threatening or stressful, they pass that information on to a couple of mediators in the brain, specifically the amygdala, the limbic system, and the prefrontal cortex. These systems process that, that information and generate a response through the HPA access and the LCNE and release corticotropin releasing hormone, a signal to release cortisol, which is the stress hormone. Mm -hmm. This cortisol binds to glucocorticoid receptors in the hypothalamus and the hippocampus. So the hypothalamus is an important brain region that controls a lot of our automatic functions, such as regulating body temperature, maintaining uh, daily physiological cycles, such as sleep, uh, controlling appetite, emotions, and sexual behavior, et cetera. And the hippocampus is a very complex brain structure, but basically plays a large role in learning and memory, and is a very vulnerable area as well, and gets damaged very easily. So from, the, from these um, systems, uh, messages are sent to the periaqueductal gray, which is a brain stem system, a full of efferent neurons that take impulses from the brain towards the body. So you can think of efferent neurons sort of like arteries in that sense. This function is important in pain management as well. So when you're not stressed out or when you're healing from a cut or a wound or whatever, we have endogenous opioids. And we have, which are like, you know, I guess your biological morphine and stuff, mm -hmm. your, your painkillers, your biological painkillers. And your body is just riddled in receptors for these because it, it's a big part in pain management. It tells the body 
in times of peace to release these opioids. Um, but this becomes a serious problem when the HPA axis becomes hyperactive. Um, so when it becomes hyperactive, all of a sudden everything becomes stressful. So everything becomes painful. Uh, uh, increase in HPA axis function is also permanent too, if it's uh, something that's caused very early in life. Mm -hmm. So that there are a lot of factors that contribute to that, such as, and this is kind of where the magic of the brain kind of comes in. It's a fascinating little, little organ. So take a mother and a child. If the mother doesn't uh, emotionally nurture her child or a father as well, or any, any uh, parental figure, then, then synaptic pruning takes place uh, more in a more negative kind of light, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So if a mother does make eye contact and emotionally nurture her child, uh, oxytocin, the love chemical is, is released in the brain. And the more it's released, the more the receptors can develop and grow. And this is vital in later years for emotional attachment and to people and relationships. And it all starts at a very young age. So the, these things, these receptors, they need to grow and grow and grow and grow. So you can do that. But if a mother neglects her child or a father neglects his child or, um, and this is where poverty can come in too. If, uh, if a family's in poverty, both parents are working, um, the child's not in school, these don't form. And instead what takes up more neural real estate is the HPA axis and stress and, and cortisol. So where you should be growing your reward systems, you're growing your stress systems and your brain becomes just thirsty or, or very, very hungry for anything that feels good, but it, it can't feel good at all because there's, there's absolutely nothing there for it to do so. There, there's very limited receptors to, for feeling good naturally anyway. And so if the HPA axis becomes hyperactive, it's always sending stress signals, signals. It's always sending stress signals to the hypothalamus and the hippocampus, which are always sending stress signals to the periaqueductal gray, which means it's always sending stress signals throughout the body, throughout the, the spinal cord, and it, it's permanent and it, it's irreversible. So that's kind of where addiction comes in. Is, this is just this is just one example as well. There's so many factors in addiction, but this is just kind of give you an idea how complicated it is. Mm -hmm. Is that when this happens and periactal aqueductal gray is always sending these stress signals to the body. It's in pain. It's starved of serotonin. It's starved of endogenous opioids, and so that first that first hit of something that feels good, say like heroin or, or, or cocaine or, or uh, sex, everything like that, that, that rush you get that first time is just so much more intense than what a healthy brain would experience because healthy brain can give itself, give the body natural rewards. But to someone who has, uh, you know, hyperactive pituitary adrenal axis, it, it, it's just not that easy. So that, that first hit becomes super super addictive 
and, and it just it, it grabs a hold of them like that and that's just one example mm-hmm. you know so poverty comes into play there too mental health everything and it just hijacks your reward system and that's what makes makes it so makes these things so addictive is just that this difference in pathways that were formed when you were a young little child that you, mm-hmm. you had no control over very cool so very very just, cool and that's just one example <clears throat> right um there's a ton to unpack there i want to i want to break it down a little bit and then give examples for anyone that's listening so that hopefully it can be a little bit more accessible and we can jump off at yes. any point so if there's anything that i mess up here please jump in i'm more than likely to mess up i do it often so just hop in and correct me anywhere that i'm wrong <clears throat> i so, i talked a lot no you did great you did uh, that was great thank you very much so let's start off with synaptic pruning so as you said there are around around 2 trillion to 3 trillion neural connections in the brain as we're born and that's the greatest number that we'll ever have is as we come out of the womb and humans are so plastic. And it was something that I liked that Robert Sapolsky talked about was that because of the physiology of humans, we come out as the most dependent animal in the mammalian kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so we're essentially hopeless until we reach about maybe three or four and we can walk and grasp. But for the first year at the very least, we're, strapped to our parents and we can't even hold on like a chimp yeah. can a chimp can hold on to their their parents for their mothers for a few days out of the birth canal and Correct. by by evolving into upright walking beings bipedal beings the hip the, sorry i'm trying to think of the best way to put this the the size of the hips had to come together and so mothers who gave birth to children that came out developed tended to die. So as time went on, children came out of the the womb undeveloped neurologically. So the narrowing of the hips caused a narrowing or a a smalling, smallening of the head of the child so that they could, so the mothers could survive. And so all of this follows this evolutionary track. And then because of that, now we come out of the womb unbelievably plastic so plastic is a term in neuro neurobiology that means changing moldable ever-changing very very baseline very moldable yeah so the environment impacts a human child far more than it would a lot of other species you could you could maybe say that and yeah so you you come out of the womb with all of these neurons and then over time they're pruned so synaptic pruning is the essentially turning off the neurons that you're not using. So an example of this is something called synesthesia, which is the overlapping of sensory input. So some people come out as synesthetic and then over time that gets pruned. This is more of a hypothesis, but it gets pruned over time. And I think that there's still a little bit of a a synesthetic integration in people. I think that's something that is still there, but to a lesser degree, for example, if I show you a very smooth rock compared to a very rough rock and I ask you which rock is louder, you're likely to say that it's the very rough rock that has lots of divots and grasses. And so I think that that's something where synesthesia survives, but for some people, synesthesia survives to the extent that 
people are able to see sounds. So when a sound is emitted, they, they have the sensation of a color. So that's an example of the synaptic pruning in effect. And as time goes on, these synapses are cut down so that we can be as acclimated to our environment as possible. And a part of that is also epigenetics. And epigenetics is we, we, we have this very long line of genes that we can turn off or turn on depending on our environment. So another example of that may be in the high mountains of Peru. There, there, there are groups that live up there that have enhanced lung capacity. And over time, that's an epigenetic change where if you require more oxygen, your lungs are able to, as, as a child, you develop the ability to enhance the efficiency of your lungs. So that would be an example of an, of an epigenetic change. Also something like deep sea diving, where there are tribes in Thailand that live on the ocean and they can, they can dive for five minutes underwater and without oxygen and they, they do completely fine. So those are examples of epigenetics and how those impacts can change more of our physiology. I'm talking less about our, our neuropsychology right now, but let's get into that now where something as small as, so there's an epigenetic change called the grandmother effect and that's in rats. So if you stress a rat out and she's gestating, I think she has to, I, th I believe she has to be in the third trimester to get the effect. It has to be when the, when the right circuitry is developing. But if you stress her, then that's going to stress the children because the influx of cortisol yes. is going to make its way through the blood-brain barrier of the children because they obviously share blood. So that's going to impact the children mm -hmm. and increase their stress. So something that you were talking about that I like, and I've been looking into quite, quite a lot lately is the impact of poverty. So if you are a stressed parent, then that's going to have impacts down the road. And I, I think that was something that Mate addressed that I liked quite a lot was that the increase in addiction and anxiety and depression in our generation isn't, it hasn't been enough time for it to be genetic. It has to be epigenetic. Yeah. And so it has to be mm -hmm. something that's happened in our environment or something that we've changed that is now it, we're, we're in this, um, this milieu, this environment where these things are becoming more and more common. And that's, that's kind of what his, that, that's what the goal is, is to understand what those factors are and how we can play a role in that. And then also going into, you were talking about oxytocin and the natural androgenic, androgynous opioid receptors and how those help to alleviate stress and also their dopaminergic receptors. So you could maybe say that the stage of development that's impacted by the behavior or the environment is also associated to the form of addiction that is cultivated later on in life. So maybe if someone is experiencing a non-warm environment during the development of their mesolimbic, mesocorticolimbic dopaminergic system, then they start to, they start to seek later on in life things that would bring about that same reaction that they're now missing out on so they would mm -hmm. maybe those people would be more prone to being addicted to cocaine and then someone who is experiencing trauma during the development of their natural 
opioid receptors, they would maybe go into, they would, they would find addiction more similar to amphetamines or some kind of opium or meth. And yeah, so that's, so that was kind of my attempt to maybe wrap all of that up. Hopefully I, if there's anything that I, I messed up on too badly, please correct me. No, you're, you're certainly, you're certainly on the right track. Um, but one thing I should mention is that a lot of these, um, reward system pathways, they share a lot of the same neural real estate, mm -hmm. um, except for uh, the opioid receptors within um, the body, the arms and the legs. So the, the dopamine and opioid pathways are all very heavily concentrated right around the hypothalamus and other brain regions, but specifically the hypothalamus and, and down uh, the brain stem. But uh, other than that, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It is a lot of environment. And that has to do actually with um, our uh, emotions and the function of human emotion in the modern context. Because emotions are, or I guess more basic emotions, kind of like anger or, or euphoria even, they're a very midbrain level phenomenon. So they, they actually, aided in Darwinian survival. But um, our, our prefrontal cortex kind of evolved so fast that we don't actually know how to fully utilize it. And we're still playing catch up a lot of the time, especially in our, our modern context. So where these emotions used to serve evolutionary purposes, the in the midbrain, now that we have a prefrontal cortex, there's a lot of communication that goes on between the two and you kind of get emotion and logic on top of it and it kind of spins into this milieu mm -hmm. and and so now the purpose of emotion isn't really for survival anymore um and it, it is something we have largely or more our more basic emotions i should say like anger uh we largely don't need them anymore and and even ancient, ancient our ancestors up to like 200 million years ago, um, addiction wasn't a problem. There, there's evidence that they they um, ingested a lot of highly addictive substances, but addiction wasn't a problem because it wasn't in our modern context. No, emotions they had evolutionary advan advant they were evolutionary advantageous. Mm -hmm. So up to like 200 million years ago, our ancestors were doing cocaine, nicotine, and ephedrine, especially. 200 million barring, or 200,000? Up to 200 million, like early, okay. early hominids. Um, barring, barring hemp and psychedelics right now, because we'll get to dive into that later. But these, like cocaine, cocaine and nicotine would allow them to survive or be less vulnerable to thermal fluctuations so they could hunt longer without uh, sweating or, or freezing as much. They could... Mm -hmm. Uh, breathe deeper with ephedrine. They could um, last longer without getting hungry with cocaine and stuff. And it, it just served this purpose of hunting. And, and then euphoria was a sign that, you know, you got a good hunt, you got to, or you, uh, you're going to make some babies and stuff. But mm -hmm. now in our modern context where everything is convenient, um, addiction and emotion, they don't play the same role. So addiction is very harmful in our, in our modern context, in our modern environment, like you were saying. Uh, because of uh, how much we were able to build, but not really evolutionarily catch up in terms of 
using our full brain capacity. Mm -hmm. um, so now you get things like hedonism and stuff. It's just pleasure for pleasure, where if you did that in like a hunter-gatherer tribe, like you, you die. Like if you're just doing drugs, like if you had an ancient strain of heroin or something and you're just doing drugs in, in the bush next to a saber-toothed cat, you die. Mm -hmm. um, but now you don't, you know, you got four walls, you got heat, you got all this. So you, you kind of can pursue those hedonistic things and, and still survive. And, and that's where it becomes a problem is because now it's addictive for the sake of being addictive and not, uh, it doesn't serve an evolutionary kind of ad, advantage, advantage anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, and so the development of the prefrontal cortex, cortex being Latin for bark, so the bark of yeah. the tree, so the yeah. closest thing to the outside that we have and how yeah. over time our development of that has given us, I think, I think a huge part of it because the prefrontal cortex is the last thing to develop in a human brain. So yeah. for females, it tends to be around 23 and for males, it tends to be around 25. And that's the, Correct. that's the decision-making process. And that's probably Correct. why children have such a difficult time sitting in a classroom. And I know that, I know that Jock Pengsep has done quite a bit of research on the prefrontal cortex of rats and how the development of a healthy brain is most realized in a natural environment where they have lots of ability to play and run around and even taking a, a wild rat that you find and comparing the brain of that to a rat that you've given adequate social and play methods or the the adequate social environment as well as the ability to play so lots of toys and then you also compare that to a rat that's been isolated and the difference between those brains are common to each other as in the rat that is isolated has a far less developed brain than the rat that socializes and plays with toys in a cage mm -hmm. and that rat has a far less developed brain than the rat that's allowed to explore the outdoors and Correct. that's a wild rat so i think that that also might come into play in terms of addiction in that the environments that we've been put in and continue to put ourselves in are potentially non-ideal for what we're what we've been evolving to do for the past few million years so that's correct uh, yeah. we're really in a race between the our genetics and our environment so i think that and i, th I think that uh, another thing that Panks had pointed out was that rats rats that are put on methamphetamine so that's what they use to treat adhd the prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex in those rats are stunted even more so than other rats so i think that that's another thing that we should maybe be looking into as a society whether we should be prescribing meth to children but <laughs> yeah that's kind of a big oversight i think yeah yeah it's a uh, one of those maybe things. we shouldn't do that <laughs> the, the consequence of a complex system you give a kid that something that does the thing that you want it to do. And then you don't really think about all of the other yeah, things that it yeah. could be doing in the future. And I know that ADHD is also a potential predisposition to drug addiction as well. Yes. So correct. I wonder how much that plays into the role of the orbitofrontal cortex where that's your, I'm, I'm sure it's a lot, but let's, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. I'd like to hear your perspective. Yeah, no, ADHD is, uh, a huge factor um, and that's because 
on its surface is it is an attention deficit disorder, but at its core, it's actually a dopamine disorder. And so like someone with ADHD, you know, they're always fidgeting and that's why fidget toys and stuff are becoming more popular. They, the, the fidget and like the, the bouncing up and down of your knee, the clicking of the pen over and over again, uh, not being able to concentrate is because that, that brain just wants quick, quick hits of dopamine because it doesn't get them anywhere else. And it manifests as a, an attention problem because, well, someone who doesn't have dopamine doesn't want to sit there and read or listen to something that, that takes a long time to get through that doesn't have any, you know, no instant gratification or instant reward. So yeah, ADHD is a, I read a report somewhere, I think it's actually up to 40 times, uh, the chances are 40 times greater for addiction than say like a neurotypical brain is, I think it's up wow. to 40 times. Yeah. yeah. I also wonder so it's what- It's evil. I don't know how much it plays. Go ahead. No, sorry, you go. I, we're, yeah, we're on a delay here. <laughs> All good. I, I don't know how much it plays into the prefrontal cortex. I haven't done a lot with ADHD and, and that sort of thing, but um, it's it's definitely very very possible and probably very likely that uh, the ADHD brain does have a, a stunted prefrontal cortex as well as a frontal lobe, just because uh, decision making is also uh, stunted. But I think that's I could be wrong here. I think that's attributed more to quick dopamine than it is to reasoning because I think the, there's this obviously the same capacity to reason, but I think it's just um, overshadowed by that starving brain that's how like the reward systems are so um so violent and so needy mm -hmm. and, and that's why it becomes so addictive because without it you're just stressed you're in pain um and, and nothing good ever ever comes of that and that's why addiction it's just so easy to fall into with that yeah i think uh, a lot of the I mean, the ADHD literature is essentially talking about how it's very, I'm trying to think of the right word. Uh, it's, it's hard to stop yourself from doing things when you have ADHD. And I think that comes in quite heavily in depression and something that you see similarly. And mm -hmm. I, was, I was trying to think of the best way to describe relationships with drugs and for lots of people, it's not as significant as being on the Lower East Side of Vancouver, which is the drug capital of Canada. Correct. Yeah. But what ends up happening for a lot of the people that end up there is there's a, a negative feedback loop in addiction. So it becomes parasitic in, and I'm, I'm, I understand the connotations of the word parasite. And it's not that I, I, I don't want that to be a provocative or inflammatory statement, but what ends up happening is the, the drug ends up slowly, slowly inhibiting the orbital frontal cortex, which is key in decision-making and behavioral regulation. So what ends up happening is that there's this constant feedback of wanting something and not being able to say no. So there's actually a, a neural mechanism that disallows for people to 
stop their behavior and to say no to something. And over time that gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And it takes months for that to, it takes months away from the drug for that to re kind of recuperate itself. It'll never be to the, the full extent of what it was, but it takes a long time for that to, for people to be able to control their behavior more. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, and that's where uh, addiction becomes a very cyclical thing too, on a sociocultural level as well, because poverty is a big factor and uh, for addiction because of that early life stress and, and the chances are higher for experiencing trauma. Um, I'm not saying that they, that doesn't happen in, in people in a higher tax bracket, but uh, it, it, the chances are, are much more common to be exposed early to, to terrible things mm -hmm. uh, while you're in poverty. And so it's easier to become addicted, but I, well, there's people who become addicted who aren't in poverty that after addiction, they become impoverished as well. So it kind of, it's this evil thing where it just kind of, it just kicks people while they're down. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're spending all your money on, on these drugs and everything. Um, but yeah, that, feed, that feedback loop is why uh, one of the more prominent models um, in understanding addiction is understanding addiction as a brain disease, uh, like a physical brain disease. Um, and that's because of that, that feedback loop. I want it. I need it. I got it. Uh, it's gone. I want it again. I need it. I got it over and over again. It, it, it hijacks your reward system. And, and this is where it gets a little more philosophical as well as... Um, it actually hijacks your character, your, your, who you are as a person because of that the atrophy to that frontal lobe. Um, some scientists have gone so far as to say that the, the frontal lobe is the seat of consciousness. And now that you have a substance that's altering your consciousness and in in, in your decision-making in the frontal lobe, um, other bodily functions in the uh, hypothalamus, as well as learning and memory in the hippocampus. It kind of turns into this ship of Theseus almost, where, um, you know, how much of a person needs to be changed or, or altered and before they're no longer that person anymore. And then that translates into legislation as well. Like, how, how, do, you, how do you handle that? How, do you punish? the person who's not themselves like are they gonna are they gonna be re able to be rehabilitated like other other people because now they have a reduced capacity to to do certain things as well and then another thing that makes me really frustrated is these drug epidemics are caused by the government and this isn't even conspiracy like there's literature on it like the the crack epidemic in America, um, largely due to the CIA, and the opioid epidemic actually began in the doctor's office um, in the early 90s when patients were complaining that doctors were not treating uh, pain adequately. Pain is um, one of the most common reasons for ER visits, about 20 pre 20% of Americans every year who go to the hospital. It's like, it's a crazy high number. It's over 50% are prescribed opioids for that pain. Mm -hmm. um, 
and in the early 90s when they weren't doing this and when it kind of transitioned over to that, uh, the pharmaceutical companies told doctors that these drugs weren't addictive at these doses and they just, they certainly were. And now, go back to uh, the drug bombs and they're arresting people and punishing them for a problem you created and it, we can see coming from a bunch of various viewpoints and, and different ways of looking at it and the literature gets so divided here because well yes it is a brain disease um but then some people other scientists come along and say well that's not fair you can't take addiction out of its uh context you can't take it out of its socioeconomic its political its societal context and just have it exist in a vacuum and then you've got legislation coming along and saying you know if it, or the philosophers come along and say, like, what is actually going on here, et cetera, et cetera. And the digger, the more you dig into it, it's just the, the bigger the mess becomes. And, and so that's why it's so hard to treat and 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 so hard to grasp as a, as a problem in general is because of just all the variables that go into it. But you are right, it is, it's certainly a, a feedback loop, but it's also just not just that. It's so much of everything you know the, the government uh personal well-being mental health poverty etc all the answer is correct for all of it, it is that yeah it, it's all of it so yeah so let me let it's, me take a sorry let me let me take a no. political commentator perspective and i kind of want you to dunk on me here in okay in in book two of the social contract by Rousseau, he talks about freedom and laws instilling freedom into a society. Mm -hmm. A part of that is you aren't free under the law to do anything that you want. You're not, you don't have private will. You have, you have, you have a, you have a societal will. So you're not free to do everything that you want because that might impact other people. And the reason for laws is that mm -hmm if you have laws set in place that encourage people to be the best version of what they could be, then that's how you develop the best society you can find. So you actually want to make things legal that are going to negatively impact the people that are following those laws. And so from that perspective, I, I think it would be reasonable to ban any type of drug that would potentially have harmful impacts or addictive, addictive aspects to them that would, put people into these feedback loops where they end up spending all of their money on drugs and they alienate their families for drugs. And so I'm, I'm trying to get at what you think would, I mean, obviously not the, the exact perfect, the, I'm, I'm not trying to find the, the perfect answer for this, but when I look at something like Portugal and how they've decriminalized substances over the past few years i think that happened within the past 10 years and because they they hit very very high rates of drug addiction and it was because they had such a crackdown on drugs they were experiencing more cartel and illegal there, there were lots of bad things happening in portugal and over time it manifested to the point where the government went the opposite way and they said okay we're going to decriminalize everything and looking at the numbers, it looks like people are not less likely to be drug addicts 
So the amount of the amount of people that are still using has remained the same. But there are other factors in place that are now creating a safer space. So that that initial yeah. point that I made with Rousseau on top of something that I'd like to add that maybe you could comment on is the safety for the people that still use drugs and how that impacts society at large. Yeah, so the war on drugs failed. Obviously, drugs won. Um, drugs are very illegal in most cases, except you know, obviously in Canada, marijuana now. And, you know, uh, punishing... Now that you've made them illegal, now you have to punish them. We see that doesn't work either because uh, the prison system, it does have a lot of kind of faults all around the world. You know, locking someone in a cell, believe it or not, isn't actually good rehabilitation whatsoever. And if your goal is punishment, fine. Actually, if your goal is punishment, it doesn't actually work either because I read a psychological study that recidivism, recidivism, I think that's how you say it, uh, actually increases when you lock someone in a cell. You know, obviously that person's going to be mad. Mm-hmm. And when they get out, they're going to vent. Um, so a society's goal should never to be, well, in, in lieu of some circumstances, maybe for sure, but uh, specifically on drugs, unless they, they killed someone while on drugs, that, that's different. But ju- I'm just speaking directly, just, just use, just mm-hmm. for usage. Punishing doesn't work. Um, withdrawals are strong enough in jail as well that they'll actually find a way to get it within the jail walls. It just doesn't work. And so the government should move towards a more harm reduction model, kind of like Portugal. Um, and, the, and the data, it does support this, is that you do decriminalize it. Um, it that does take a layer of stigma away and now people who are addicted and want to get help you know they'll feel more inclined to do so um they'll eat less tax dollars if you're conservative and that's what i uh, read about i think tax money should go to back into uh, a community you know to help with infrastructure and, and other things to help mm-hmm. um then then if these if this money goes back into harm reduction and stuff, that it, it actually works. Um, punishment doesn't work. What, ha- what you need, you know, is you need like uh, safe injection sites, uh, other harm reduction models, access to addictions counselors, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and these are the things uh, that help. It's almost as if uh, trying to get at the root of the problem rather than isolating someone in solitary for years on end uh, will actually solve the problem and it actually costs a lot less to do this as well. Um, Prisons are expensive on the taxpayer, whereas uh, one healthy injection site and a couple of nurses, I think it costs about half as much as it does to keep one inmate in prison for a year. So. I think I, I, this is just me and my opinion now, but, but it is based on a bit of literature uh, that, and we, we are trying to come towards this at the end of our research project as well as um, a call to a more harm reduction 
kind of model because addiction is so evil. It is, and it is largely not at the fault of the person who is using the drug. You know, there's other factors that go into it. So as soon as you can see the person behind the addiction and recognize them as a human being, you know, it just, I just feel like a harm reduction model just works so much better. And there's less overdose deaths, you know, there's less this and that and this and that. And it just, it's just so much better on, on every single front. And I think that's what um, we're seeing a lot in Portugal as well as that this decriminalization uh, takes that layer of stigma away and is the first step towards wanting to get help if those want, those people do want it because making drugs illegal doesn't make them go away as we see drugs, as I said before, kind of circling back. They are illegal and they're still epidemics. So it's not working and it, and it needs to be something more holistic and more uh, interdisciplinary anyways. So a few things that I want to comment on there. You're totally right that it's actually far more cost-effective to start safe injection and rehabilitation projects mm -hmm. than it is to put people into jail. And for a few different reasons that I don't think people would think about immediately, one of which being if you're, if you're convicted as a drug user, then you end up going to jail and then you're, you're losing a certain amount of time in jail. You come out of jail, it's more difficult to find a job. You've lost all of the ability to work in a job during that time and you're also unable to support yourself. So you're coming out on whatever zero dollars that you had and you're essentially going right back to the place where you are. You were, and there are a few, I, I found this really interesting in the, in the behavioralist school of thought is that we don't only become addicted to the substance, but also the environment in which we take that substance. So, the majority of people that overdose aren't overdosing in the place that they normally take the drug. So if you look, I would, I would implore people to go and look up their favorite Hollywood actor that overdosed and none of them overdosed in their home in the place that they've, they've done it over and over again. They're normally overdosing in a hotel room. And a part of that is you become, a, so you, you develop an association between the drug itself and the environment. And so anytime you go into that environment, you are taking, you, your body is preparing beforehand for that drug. And we always want to be in homeostasis. So we always want to be yeah. at the same level neurochemically. And I think that that's something that I actually wrote down while I was writing your paper the other day was that an issue with drug addiction is that the dopaminergic system is at such a deficit mm -hmm. and the HPA axis, the cortisol system is at it's so much higher than it ought to be. And so the goal of drugs is to introduce something foreign that actually creates homeostasis. So you're essentially trying to create your own homeostasis with that drug. And so yep. what ends up happening is what ends up happening in for, for a user that's using it in a regular safe, safe space for them is their body's already starting to, lash out against the drug and it starts to prepare to break the drug down to return to homeostasis faster. So that's the reason that people do more and more and more drugs as they develop a tolerance, not only to the drug, but also to their environment. And so 
if you, yeah. so this is also a, a warning for anyone that's listening and does drugs is if you have a drug that you could potentially overdose on, don't take the same amount of that drug in a place that you're not familiar with because your, your metabolism isn't going to break it down as fast. And that's when, that's when overdose happens. And that's also how people end up getting higher when they, I don't know, you go to a party and smoke a joint or mm -hmm. something and, and then you totally freak out because normally you can smoke a full joint and you take three puffs and lose your mind. And yeah. so what ends up happening is people return from prison or return from wherever they've gone to rehabilitation and they, so let's like, I'll, I'll paint a picture. You're on the subway going back to your home and you're totally clean. You've been clean for several years now. As you get closer to your home, you start to see things that you now associate with drugs. You see the train station that you purchased drugs at. You see the people that sold you drugs. All of these things start to elevate your response to getting those drugs. And then as you get closer yeah, to the spot. manifest as a craving. Right, yes, yes, yes. So as you get closer and closer to that spot where you've done drugs, the withdrawal symptoms actually re-manifest themselves. So it's not enough to just take someone just to get someone off of drugs and then reintroduce them to their environment. Something yeah. that, something that I started to do A after breakups, funnily enough, this is kind of when I really figured this out was I would often go to the places that meant something to me in the context of that relationship. And initially yeah. it would be, you know, initially it would be very tough to do. It would be very emotional. And then as time went on, I was able to more and more normalize the experience. And then I was able mm -hmm. to reclaim those places for myself. And so I think there's a, there's a similarity in that between what I did there and drug addiction and how to treat drug addiction. So just going to a rehabilitation site and then expecting people to return home and not to relapse is, I think it's, a, it's something that we haven't really addressed as a society yet. Normally people, you can go to rehab, get completely clean. And then once you re-enter your past environment where you have consumed, then the withdrawal happens again, then your craving starts again. And I think that was also what happened during the Vietnam War was that people were in Vietnam, they were doing, was it heroin or opium? I think it was heroin. I can't remember. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was heroin, but people, people, so people are doing heroin in Vietnam. And as people are coming back, as the, the veterans are coming back from Vietnam, the government is starting to freak out because they understand what's going on. They think that a bunch of people are going to come back into the country and essentially be drug addicts right from the start. And the only people that ended up continuing their use were people that were socially alienated. So people that didn't have families. And that's another, that's another part of this whole thing is the, the family unit and doing mm -hmm. any type of rehabilitation with your family or with the support system is far more successful than doing it on your own. And so those, those people that came far back more from, successful. Yeah. Yeah. And so those people that came back from Vietnam, it wasn't only that they had support networks, but it was also the fact that they weren't in the middle of a foreign jungle that would initiate their craving cycles. So I think that those are all, interesting things to think about. I had another son of a bitch question that I was going to ask on the end of that. Oh, right. Um, okay. So I'm, let me, let me put my hat on so people don't think I'm an asshole. I'm someone that has experienced trauma in the past and I'm not a drug addict. Yeah. 
why in the world would I want my tax money to go to a bunch of junkies that end up shooting every ounce of money that they get through their arms? Why is that something that I would want to do? Why is that something? Why can't they fend for themselves? I think something that Mate referred to in his book was a, an RCMP officer that was asked about drug addiction and not methadone, naloxone, methadone, something that inhibits the craving for heroin. So people yeah. end up, yeah, so, uh, but it was naloxone. And he was upset that more and more people had naloxone kits because one of the greatest deterrents for drug use is overdose. Yeah. So if you start offering people all of these things, then it's going to increase their likelihood that they're going to consume drugs. And so back to me being a son of a bitch, why would I want my tax money to go to these people that are, are essentially just eating it and they're not, they're not being working members of society. They're not increasing the, the, the quality of, of my community. So why would I want that? Well, one is that, um, overdose being kind of the biggest deterrent to addiction is just it's categorically false. So when when you're that far into the throes of addiction, um, especially on stuff like heroin or or what have you, uh, overdose becomes a problem the more and more you do it because um, you get stronger and you need more to get that rush. Mm-hmm. And by the time you're at that point, I there's not a lot of people who struggle with addiction on drugs that are that you can overdose on that are actually that worried about their lives um and even when they start to get on it um the more and more they do you know the less kind of worried they become um because they this is more on the the psychological side and you know, they just become shells of themselves. They, they live for that next high. But when they're sober, life becomes unbearable. Um, and that's because sometimes that homeostasis, as you were talking about. So if uh, the d- dopamine opioid deficiency is here mm-hmm. and um, that, uh, that, that moving towards homeostasis, the drug is here and it goes like this, um, sometimes it can actually uh, invert and loop. And so when you come back down that deficiency is worse than it initially was and so like and the higher the more you do the more doses you do the higher the dose etc when the higher you get uh the further you fall as well and it just becomes more and more more and more and more and more painful and so these people are really sadly they don't actually care if they live or die and that is a lot of because of how bad the the drug makes you feel on the come down, but as much as well as how society treats these people too, just like they're they're invisible, they're they're hungry ghosts, as as Mate kind of insinuated there. But as well for that that tax dollar question, why would I want to throw my my tax dollars at that? Is uh just fiscally it makes more sense as well than than jail like it's just the data's there it's it's that simple you you'll just save a lot of money man if you don't feel like being empathetic you will just save 
save yourself some money. Right. It would be the, the proper but, thing to do for a narcissistic person that wants the best for themselves is to actually just accept this and buy into that idea. And something that, something that comes to me now with the, the analogy of the low dopamine, high cortisol is that it's not that you never want cortisol because yeah. you want a, you want a relationship between the dopamine. So you want something to, it's a, I think it's a push and pull relationship where the cortisol is pushing you. So if you're stressed, it means that you should be doing something. And if you're motivated, it means that you want to be doing that thing. So there's a relationship between the two where they're inverting between one another and you're motivated and then you're stressed. You feel the need to do something, but it's not a, it's not a detrimental stress to your life until that dopamine dissipates and the cortisol increases. And so that's when something, so the technical term for that is allostatic load when you have an overactive HPA axis. So, and that, that leads to a ton of different things like cardiovascular disease and high blood pressure and all of these other things. It's a, I would liken it to cortisol being an acid that runs through your body constantly and breaks down tissues that end up having long-term implications. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, on top of that too. It, it, it actually can cause mental illness kind of back to that uh, epigenetic stuff you were talking about the more, the more stressed you are, you know, it's kind of like the mutant gene in X-Men, I guess. The more stressed you are, you know, it's crushing the crushing weight of the world and stuff. If there is a, a gene that hasn't been activated for mental health that you have been born with, suddenly it flicks on. And now you're not just stressed. Uh, now you have like bipolar, for instance, or you're not just stressed anymore. Now you're schizophrenic on top of that, mm-hmm. or you're not just stressed anymore. You have anorexia. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a complex interplay as well as the, the dopamine and limbic system. You were right. They do work kind of in opposite of each other. So when one's not going, the other one is. There's never nothing going on. Mm-hmm. And so, but with that hyperactive HPA, then it's just going all the time. Um, and no dopamine is ever getting in there. But yeah, that's... That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that the, so I'm sorry, I'm trying to think about, I I had a thought there. Let me, let me just get it back. Yeah, no problem. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll keep trying to get it back, but I'd like to know what the difference would be between legalization and decriminalization. I think that that's something that is a little bit fuzzy as of now in society. Yeah, well, legalization is um, like marijuana, Mm -hmm. you know, in Canada here, where you can just walk into a building that's like an Apple store and you can pick out your weed for recreational purposes. Um, So now not only is it decriminalized, um, it's... uh, What's the word? Like it's, it's there's another word I'm thinking of, but for lack of a better word, it's widely available now. You can just buy it, um, and it's it's sold, it's advertised, it's it's part of the economy now. It, it you know the money goes back in to uh, the economy and infrastructure and 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 what have you. Uh, decriminalization 
is is just that um, you can't buy or sell that drug anywhere but you won't necessarily get a prison sentence if if you have it um, so the the idea is is that you don't want people to have it or buy it and if you had stores where you could just buy meth and heroin you're gonna have more addicts um, for sure because it's now just available everywhere uh, the idea is um, is just so that the the people that that are are struggling with it can come forward if they they would like to and say i have a problem i need help without fear of getting arrested because just recently uh i don't I actually don't know if it's a municipal rule or or provincial or, or federal a law uh that if you and a friend say are hanging out you're you're just for example, you're both uh, heroin users and one of your friends starts overdosing on heroin, you can phone the police or, or 911 and they, they, they will come take you to the hospital, etc. But if they find like heroin needles on you or paraphernalia, you, you won't be arrested uh, because because of that that life saving kind of thing, like if the if the fear of arrest has actually uh, it killed people, because the they won't get the help they need because you know is, is it better is it better to be dead than alive in jail like like oh shoot I'm in so much trouble but uh, it's kind of that it piggybacks on that kind of idea just decriminalization versus legalization is uh, the commodification versus okay you're not going to jail we can we can help you but it's not it's not without a uh i lost the word but it's like uh have you seen the movie watchmen yeah i i, I just like a line dr manhattan does that kind of sums up uh decriminalization um i can't remember the context but he said without condoning or condemning i understand and and that's kind of what decriminalization is. Mm -hmm. That's a good line. I like that. The the thing I was thinking of before was the relationship that people have with drugs and how they actually don't, after a while, they don't actually enjoy the drug anymore. They're doing the drug yeah. just to rebalance their their neurochemistry and they become as addicted. Or just to, to not get sick. Yeah, ex yeah exactly. They, they're doing the drug, number one, because they, they actually end up liking the the ritual of it they they find that that's mm -hmm. very soothing because i think that that's a associated to our dopaminergic system where the dopamine is actually higher on your way to a goal than it is when you yeah. achieve the goal complete it yeah and so that was that was something of um so i just wanted to come back and tie that up and no, yeah 100 yeah and something that i number one it's not really a a good thing for the people that it's not a good thing to be afraid of the people that are supposed to help you when you need help. Yes. That's something to, about the, the police and the medical system in, in the, the scope of addiction. Another thing is the, the things that become associated with decriminalization. So being able to offer doses of drugs that are very expensive for people in a harm reduction site, 
So a few different facets of harm reduction situs that you're able to you're able to acquire clean needles. That's a huge issue right now is that people are using reusing needles and using other people's needles, and that increases the rate of HIV, which is a deadly yep. disease and slowly breaks down your immune system. And harm reduction sites allow for you to have a safe place to inject, and they give you clean needles. And also, it has the potential to break down any cartel activity. So illicit drug activity and illicit drug selling it could be broken down if the government begins to regulate drugs. And another part of that is mm-hmm. drugs are very expensive when you get them illegally. And drugs are less expensive when they're government regulated. And so in these harm reduction sites, you can go from people spending, I don't know, say 50 to $80 on an eight ball of crack or cocaine. And you can now start having these people pay however much the, the however much it costs for the government to actually create that thing. And then from there, they're actually able to develop a positive feedback loop in their own lives because they're not anymore spending all of their money on drugs and ending up drug addicted and homeless. They're actually able to save money and put that towards other things because, like I mm-hmm. said, they don't need to spend everything on drugs and that sounds easy enough for anyone that's not addicted to a substance, but when you are addicted to that substance, you, it's the only thing that makes pain go away. Then that's something that it's something that you need. I, I'm not even sure how I could um, properly articulate the experience of needing. I, I went through a, after my Achilles rupture, the, my, after my first Achilles rupture, mm-hmm. I was prescribed an opiate and I, I took a very small amount of a bit of that was a more of an ego trip. I kind of wanted to just experience the pain and feel what it actually felt like to, to blow an Achilles without using medication to dissipate the, the experience at all. And so I, I was taking a very small amount. And then after I think four days, I stopped taking it altogether. And that night I woke up with cold sweats and it was, it felt like there was, I was going through Chinese water torture everywhere on my body. It, it, everything just felt so, it felt like there were bugs under my skin and I had to move and, and I, I, I couldn't sleep that night. And so I went through withdrawal and that was after like literally a couple of days. And so I, I, don't, I, like, I don't touch any drugs really because I'm just horrified that I would like them too much and I would just absolutely spiral. Yeah, so, uh, so I think that's something to... To, to keep in mind is the actual physiological effect of needing something. And I remember I, the moment I realized I was going through withdrawal, I was like, I, I just had that feeling in my, in my skin, under my skin, kind of everywhere in my body and cold sweats, couldn't sleep, had to move. And I remember thinking, Hey, if I, if I just take my prescription, I'll, I'll probably be able to fall asleep. And that was kind of the moment that I really snapped into things and went, Oh, that's, that's not good. That's not a good feeling. It's the, it's the, um, you don't know that you're caught in the web until you realize that you need the thing to feel normal. I know. And that's kind of how it gets you. And that's, uh, that should just go to show you just how, uh, addictive some of these substances are and how a lot of the times there is no free will. Like these people aren't, uh, lazy. They're not, they're not dumb. It, it, the chances are likely that 
they were prescribed in a morphine or something when they were young and now they needed to feel normal and if they don't take it like you said you know you get all these withdrawal symptoms but uh, a lot in a lot of cases like a person like they're at the lowest point in their life they try this thing um such as this heroin is a, a prime example of that um and now after one one dose they are dependent on it uh and that that's just how addictive it is like your body needs it after one dose or you get the shakes you get the chills um and it's it's just that that's how com complicated it can be and um that's why and i think that's a, another reason why just coming out of jail um getting arrested for it is such a such a negative thing uh because a lot of the time they are forced to go through just withdrawals on their own in their cell it's hell they come they come back out um like and a lot of addiction has to do with pavlovian learning as well like you said just a, a context associated with the drug mm -hmm. as well as their tolerance being low due to withdrawals and stuff so they take the same dose they did before they went to jail and now all of a sudden they're dead but um that that yeah it's it's just it's that scary um and i i i've thought stuff like that too i never been on, on morphine or anything, but I, I've had a couple of friends, like I'm an army family, so I, I know a lot of vets. Um, and, and they're prescribed morphine out the ass for any, for any injury. And a lot of them are just addicted for years and, and they're just zombies. And, just, and as soon as they come off of it, it's just hell. And, and, and that's kind of the thing too with drugs is, it starts off just amazing and then it kind of gets to a cap and you just need it to feel normal and uh, mm -hmm. nicotine is another prime example of of that and uh caffeine as well uh these these are something that they feel great they wake you up and then before you know it you, you just need it so you don't just feel disgusting anymore mm -hmm. and it, it's just terrible it's just it's evil I and mean, that's just that's just another facet of it it's just gross and evil it's yeah. not as, as easy to say that this person is just lazy and they, they don't deserve love or sympathy or whatever. It's low followed by dependence after one hit. And I don't know. It's, it's just, it's that evil and it's that quick and it's that life destroying. Mm -hmm. So I'm good, good on you for uh, being able to kind of power through that. Though. That's not easy especially with morphine man that's like good on you for recognizing that and then even even better on you for actually taking the steps to go through that that's not easy i was just scared i was absolutely horrified i had i had done my my fair amount of research into drug addiction i was very interested in drugs growing up so i first thing i i recognized the symptoms and it had never been anything that i'd gone through before so first thing i recognized the symptoms and what was going on i knew that it was a a quick road to hell to say the least. So yeah, I had to, I had to pull the plug on that. I think that one, one thing that you say about the, the initial experience of bliss is that, well, there, there are a couple of different ways to look at that is that when you're using a drug to treat pain, you don't, in my experience, I didn't really actually experience euphoria or bliss from the drug. It was just the pain went away. And then, 
as as I came off of it, then I realized more and more that maybe the euphoria was to bring me back to my baseline of not being in pain anymore. And it wasn't actually me exceeding any of my neurochemicals at a normal level, but it was me recalibrating and finding a, my, my homeostatics place. So then over time that, that those, those things, uh, they acclimated to being in the same place. And so the, my, my opiate receptors went lower and my homeostasis stayed the same. So then that, well, that's what would cause addiction. But for lots of people that get into drugs without having a, a prerequisite requirement such as pain is there's a an immediate revivification of childhood where things are new again mm. you look around and things are new and you feel warm and you you finally feel like you're having a hug for the first time in your life and there's this visceral experience of warmth and novelty and everything is new and then as time goes on, like you were talking about with uh, a lesser example of nicotine and caffeine is that over time, it's something that you need because it starts off as great. And then over time it becomes normal. And once it's normal, then you need it to be normal to be yourself. Yeah. Just a, a beautiful face, but a cold, cold heart. And uh, it's just all, all the time. It's like that there's never, one addiction that actually serves to benefit anymore like it did in the past like it's just all it all leads down a, a pretty bad road of just of craving and, and feeling sick and throwing money at the problem to just keep you from feeling terrible and um, i think that's why partially why it's such a problem too is because we don't know how to fix it uh, there there's no panacea there's no cure-all for addiction and actually um addiction treatment looks uh, very different depending on on gender on socioeconomic class on type of substance or behavior you're addicted to uh and there's so many variables that just go into what kind of therapy you need that it, it, no now we have no idea a how this started what the prognosis is and and now we have no idea how to to accurately treat this and it just it's question on question on question on question. And that's why I think another reason I think jail is just the worst answer possible. Um, especially with people who are addicted to things like alcohol or barbiturates. Withdrawal can kill you. Mm -hmm. With it it you just die. I can't remember the the neuroscience behind it, but you, when, when you just cut barbiturates and, and alcohol cold turkey, you have seizures and you can die. And like, why? And you're just going to throw that person in jail? What, is, what good is that doing anybody? Mm -hmm. uh, we, need, we need help. These people need help. And they, they need help tailored to their, their needs. And it's just, we are, as a society, we're just handling these problems just categorically and inherently wrong in every single avenue, um, judicially and governmentally anyways. And I'm not advocating for people, again, who, who like uh, drink and drive and kill people and stuff. Like, I, I definitely think those people yeah. should 
have a, a more a stricter uh, sentence put on them, but just people who, who are just addicted and that's their vice. It just, it just blows my mind that, that, we're, that we're treating them this way. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I've, it's just so, it's just, it's objectively wrong. Mm-hmm. And I wish, and I hope more people come to understand that. I know that there are societal factors that we could work on too. One of the, something that is, tends to be successful in addiction rehabilitation is telling the truth. Simple enough as it is being able yeah. to, to tell people when you've relapsed, to tell people what you're experiencing, how you feel, having a, a, social, a social milieu where you're able to actually express yourself and mm-hmm. be honest with people. And some, so when the founders of AA, they approached Carl Jung and they asked him to comment on addiction and the biology of addiction. And he said, Bi- addiction isn't about isn't about biology. It's, it's not about any of that. It's a spiritual issue. And I I think that he didn't hit all of it, but I think that he hit a couple nails on the head there. And for, for one example, I think 40% of residents on the lower East side in Vancouver are indigenous, lots of them being indigenous women. And I had a conversation with a friend a, a couple of weeks ago now, and we talked about, suicide rates in indigenous bands. So Mm -hmm. 10% of the 10% of bands harbor 90% of youth suicide in indigenous bands. And I don't think that number would be far off if we compared addiction to that as well. And a few, a few of the, just for anyone who hasn't listened to that episode, a few of the factors that play into that are self-governance as one having more control over the the policing in the community and having cultural practices such as teaching language and dance and music and a lot of those things they all play in together and having a a sense of place and all of those things coalesce together where if you have a strong community you have a strong family and that develops strong individuals and so i think that there is a, a large spiritual facet to drug addiction and maybe we can go into the more brute force spirituality of psychedelics. And I, I really liked your paper on ayahuasca and how that, uh, the, the relationship between a drug and drugs. I think that that's uh, something that the, the legislative branch can't really wrap their minds around and I, I agree with them because it's a little bit strange and freaky because we just have really no idea what a lot of these drugs are are doing and by drugs I mean now psychedelics so maybe we should I'll refer to them now as psychedelics rather than drugs and drugs as the actual addictive ones so psychedelics tend to not be addictive psychedelic research started nope, in not at all uh, yeah it's a uh, I think a part of that is the they they won't so they I think that I don't want to get this wrong I think they have a half life in potency of a half or I'm definitely getting that wrong if if you were to if you were to take psilocybin one day 
and you take three grams to experience the same level of high the next day, you have to take six grams. So it very quickly exponentiates to the point where you, it's a drug that you can't abuse because of the, the, the rate at which the effects dissipate. So that's one part of psychedelics. They're also very strange in that people tend to experience a religious experience and in- Sorry, some, Josh, you just cut me. Oh, sorry. Where did I, where did I lose yet? Uh, the half-life of uh, psilocybin, three okay. grams to six grams. Right. So psilocybin and other psychedelics such as LSD tend to, it, ta- it exponentiates very quickly. So you're unable to abuse the drug because the requirements to abuse the drug very quickly run out of control. It's hard to mm-hmm. 60 grams of mushrooms if you're trying to get high on your, whatever that would be, your fifth or sixth day. And so that's a, that's a part of them. They're non, they're non-addictive people are, you can't really abuse them. They also tend to initiate a religious like experience. And in some circumstances you see things that are indescribable. Rick Straussman is a, he was a Harvard researcher in the seventies that essentially left DMT research because about half the people talked about seeing aliens. They went to a different planet and they saw little little men and women that weren't supposed to be there. And tons of people said the same thing. And he said, well, maybe that's a hallucination and maybe that's not real. And all of the people said, it's, it's more real than you are right now. So that's a, I think that's another thing that really put the, the brakes on any psychedelic research. And so now psilocybin at John Hopkins is being researched quite thoroughly. And the only reason that it's not LSD is because it's hard to spell psilocybin. And there wasn't the, there wasn't the same emotional connotation to psilocybin as there was to LSD. And so I'd like to know what your thoughts are uh, on psychedelics in general and what you see as the future of actually, I don't know if you, I don't know if you knew this, but, Gabor Mate was using ayahuasca to treat addiction. That doesn't surprise me whatsoever. Yeah. I think I think right after he finished the Realm of the Hungry Ghost, he did his own ayahuasca ceremony, and then he started to use it to treat addiction in the Lower East Side. And the Canadian government came down and told him that he can't do it. I believe that. Yeah, there are uh, there are some ayahuasca churches in the Amazon. Um, and the lower parts of Central and South America that uh, researchers can get a grant to study. But uh, for those of you who are listening who don't know uh, what ayahuasca is, it's a it's a plant tea version of uh, DMT. Uh, you might have heard Joe Rogan talking about that. Uh, psilocybin is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, and LSD is. Um, I can't remember what it stands for, but I think m- most people are f- at least familiar with LSD. Lysergic acid. It actually, it's, it comes from LSA, which is lysergic acid. Okay. And that is, you can, you can get that from ergot mold. So ergot mold is something that grows on certain types of wheat. Okay. So it is at its core a, a fungus as well. 
Yes. Yeah. I, I okay. That's interesting. I've, I've heard a few theories about the Salem witch trials being being initiated by people eating ergot mold infested bread and having a bunch of LSD trips. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just finished a book called uh, The Immortality Key by Brian Murarescu. And his mission there is to go back into Western society and understand if psychedelics were the leading factor or the the leading substance that people took to go on spiritual journeys into the underworld so it goes from i think the the gods that held the sacrament essentially that's what it turns into is the the religious sacraments in christianity it went from horus in egypt to el and then to persephone and then to dionysus and then to jesus so that's kind of the that's the string that he follows in exploring what the whether there were psychedelic compounds in religious experience that inevitably created religion itself. It's fascinating. Very cool. I I, I want to take a look into that. I haven't actually read into that at all. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, highly recommended. I, the research I've done is mostly uh, on psychedelics is mostly in uh, psychiatry and psychology and healing. Um, and, and it's pretty astonishing actually. And it, it's pretty interchangeable minus a few details between most psychedelics, um, especially the most plant derivative ones like ayahuasca and mushrooms is that, uh, they're a, a psychiatric marvel. Um, there's no pill or treatment on the planet earth that is effective. At, at, uh, at curing and, and healing as much as uh, psychedelics are. And, and there's, there's streams of data now that are, are starting to back this up because like you said, it is becoming um, more researched again because we have a, a fresh perspective on it. And I think just recently in Colorado, psilocybin was decri decriminalized. Um, but some of the fine, they're, they're, it's just, it, it it definitely does put the magic in, in magic mushrooms. So things like ayahuasca and, and DMT, they they have neuroregenerative effects, and that shouldn't happen. But when you ingest these substances, it happens, and um, so that that synaptic pruning that has taken place, you know. Um, being I'm 23, uh, you're 24, 25, right? 23. Um, my bad. That's okay. Uh, we, a lot of our our neural branches are, are set in their ways now. Like the hot synaptic structure that we formed throughout these last couple of years. Uh, they're, they're you very cut out for a second there. You cut out at the. You started talking about synaptic branches. So the yeah, the synaptic branches that we have, uh, largely by and by, make us who we are. By this age, the brain is still plastic in a lot of ways, but it it, it is much more difficult to kind of prune things that you've been doing for, for twenty three years now. Mm -hmm. But when you take psilocybin or, or uh, especially psilocybin 
uh, all of a sudden parts of your brain that never talk to each other are screaming at each other and talking loudly over each other everywhere all of the time during the whole trip. And so it creates these new neural pathways for you that um, actually build you a framework to get out of some of the, the, the ruts of your life that you, you've been stuck in. Like uh, say like you wake up every day, you feel like you're a failure, you feel like you're this or that. After one trip, all of a sudden you got a new pathway around that where it's like, this is this is how you can get better and uh all psilocybin does is give your brain a little nudge and activate some brain areas and all of a sudden uh you're a much more divergent thinker and that's the, the main mechanism for healing in in uh the psychedelics is uh, what they think anyways is divergent thinking it, it increases your creative capacity by letting your brain communicate with itself on an unprecedented scale. I, um, I think everybody's heard the, the, the thing where we only use 10% of our brain. It actually, it's a little higher than that. It's more like- I was gonna uh, say, we, we use 20. all of our brain. It just depends on the situation. Yeah. It's just not all of the time. Yeah. But when you're on, <laughs> on, on psychedelics, you are <laughs> using, uh, way over half of your brain all of the time during the whole trip so it's bringing up old memories it's it's thinking about the future and dying and being okay with that it's being aware of the present it's almost uh like seeing past present and future at the same time and, and it's just it's so powerful because of all these connections being made and just shooting off like light that it can um it can cure ptsd in in combat veterans uh cure it it cures it so it um so people after one dose a lot of the times they they no longer meet the diagnostic criteria for ptsd something that always gets checked or that follows a combat veteran for the rest of their life they take one mushroom and all of a sudden it's gone so just to give uh, an inkling of insight into ptsd essentially what happens is someone meets a situation which decimates any axioms of reality that they once mm -hmm. thought was possible. So essentially it happens, it happens often in war when you see things that you never thought that you would see. And what happens is your, the research is a little bit differentiated between a predisposition towards PTSD and what actually happens neurologically when PTSD happens. So from one perspective you have, the predisposition is that your hippocampus is a little bit smaller and that predisposes you for PTSD. And then from the other perspective, it's PTSD causes a reaction where your hippocampus shrinks and your amygdala expands. So your amygdala being, yes. in, in layman's terms, the, the area for fear and negative emotion to some extent, arousal. So sorry, continue, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Thank you for that. Um, so it, it can cure PTSD. Um, and yeah, there is, there's genetic predisposition as well as environmental factors that go, go into that. Uh, it can also, it, it cures anxiety, it cures depression, it cures um, just almost any mental health problem you can think of. And it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make it or lessen the symptoms or anything. It large, it cures it. 
which which is to psychiatry it's it's a, a big wtf and and on top of that it, it cures addiction as well especially nicotine um and alcohol those have been the, the most uh, studied studied anyways um it cures them. Uh, a lot of the time it isn't after one session you do have to do a few uh for sure but uh, it's just absolutely mind-boggling to think that one of the most ancient simple plants on on the planet that existed everywhere along the east-west axis where where civilization fully began to take form and just this little root that you could take that it could heal you it could make you more aware of things your environment it could connect you to the earth like you feel the sense of connection it could it could show you things it could lift the veil i know um in amazonian rituals a while ago and i can't remember the specific tribe but they would take uh dmt when they were 13 years old as a kind of a passage into manhood and what they saw they described as gods for sure and they come back with some form of wisdom and that's kind of how they carry themselves for the rest of their lives and and, and it's just this little plant that grows everywhere along that axis that that uh it heals uh it makes you more aware and and it just it connects you to to something that feels a lot higher and a lot more out of body or um transcendent than than what it what is around and it kind of makes you a keeper when you of the earth and and all these spiritual things so it certainly is such a, a spectacle such an amazing part of our history and i know you were messaging me earlier talking about uh you know just how big of an impact did these things have on western society and, and society as in, in general through through our evolution and i think that's uh something uh i, I want to do more research in but I, I would like to hear your thoughts on on that as well it was so okay so there are a few there are a few streams there's something i want to clear up really quickly so we don't get too far sure. away from it i think that as such a novel molecule in our in our science I think that we do have to be more conservative towards it than liberal. I think that anything, anything novel that gets thrown into something, I think that it does have the potential to be quite revolutionary. I'm, I, th I think I would change the terminology from cure to maybe give the potential to heal. There are people that okay, don't. Fair, fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to, I don't want to nitpick it. I just want to, like for anyone oh, no. listening, I don't want I don't want people to to go out and start finding LSD and mushrooms and just dosing up right away. It's important that you. I, sh I should say it it has the potential to cure. It doesn't all all right. ways. Yeah, and I I experience the same thing. I get very excited about this stuff. I it's just because of the the long term implications of it. But I I do feel the yes. the responsibility to be as scientific and skeptic and skeptical as possible yes. about it as I as I am with everything nope. else problem so the, it, it does have the immense capacity to 
have the potential to heal people from things that they're experiencing in their lives. And a few of the, yes. a few of the John Hopkins numbers that I'm aware of from Roland Griffith is a, an 85% cessation rate in smokers who have been long-term addicts of smoking. Did I cut out? Okay, no, I'm good. Um, the divergent thinking, I actually think that's a really good way to look at it because I, I tend to think of things in terms of personality, the personality literature, and it can move you an entire standard deviation in terms of openness. So openness to experience is akin to creativity. Yeah. So I think that's a really good way that you put it is that it enables divergent thinking in people or it exacerbates someone's ability to think divergently. And so, for example, it would be mm -hmm. one, one dose of, and it has to be a significant dose. So at John Hopkins, they're working with a heroic dose, yes. which in the, the McKenna language, that's a, a dose of 10 grams or higher. No, five grams. Oh, is it five? Five grams. Yeah, maybe don't take 10. Don't take 10. <laughs> Nobody take 10 grams of mushrooms. Um, in John Hopkins, they're doing it under supervision from someone. So they're laying down in a dim room on a couch with a trip sitter right there. They're encouraged to be okay. curious about their trip. They're given a blindfold and they listen to classical music, which is just bitching. Nice. nice. Yeah, very fun. And so that's the, that's the milieu that people are put in for that experience and so okay. it seems to be very safe and the amount of the amount of bad trips are few but they also tend to be good experiences and also mm -hmm. to have the long-term implications of the trip itself there has to be the you, you could say somewhat religious experience where you feel that you're moving yes. beyond yourself so one way that i've heard it described is the genie being released from the bottle and being yeah. reintegrated with the world at a larger self, which is something that I think also Freud touched on in a different way in his early writing, where he discusses religion as, so in his, uh, in his levels of development as an individual, you start off as a child and you're actually part of this whole thing you haven't developed ego yet you haven't developed i yeah you're simply this thing that exists alongside everything else and the desire to find religion is one's desire to reintegrate into the larger self the cosmic consciousness the to, to lift the veil of of the brahma maya in hindu philosophy that would all be the the same concept of being so you go from a, a child you are not I, you are, we, and then you grow up and you develop an ego consciousness. And something I loved in your paper was the, the acronym of drug-induced ego disillusion. And, and the, the acronym for that being DIE. This died, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was just so funny. I had a good laugh at that. And so that's something that ends up happening is the, the re-disillusion of ego, which is the reinitiation of yourself into the greater being, in the greater consciousness into God. And that's the, that's, that's Freud's perspective on seeking religious experience. Yeah. So that's something that has to not, not necessarily ego death, but that's something that has to happen to reap the long-term benefits of the psilocybin and the benefits are seen yes. as yes. six months to a year. I think that they're still doing longitudinal, not longitudinal studies to understand yeah. how far, how far that's going. And 
So those are all, those are just a few little factoids from the John Hopkins studies that I wanted to talk about before I dive into what I, what I think about these things. One of which being, let's hear it. Let's hear it. I'm excited. Okay. Uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't really talked. I mean, I talk about psychedelics occasionally on here. I don't want to, I, I like to, you, you have a broad, vast knowledge of them. So that's, that's a, a reason that I'm, I was very excited to talk to you. And so I'll, I'll take it from a few different mythological perspectives and then hopefully tie sure. them into to the culture. So in Amazon, so the indigenous Amazon peoples are likely to have come from the Australian Aborigines. So you're cutting out again. Dang. Okay, let's wait until. There you are. Nice, perfect. Okay, that was a probably a, a good place to stop. Gets the gets the mouth salivating. So from the so I'll, I'll go. Amazonian, uh, Indian, like East Indian, not indigenous, and yeah, then I'll yeah, go yeah. to. I know what you mean. I know what okay, you mean. And then, okay, and then I'll go to, to more of a Western style. So. The. The mythos behind the development of the Amazonian civilization is. That, so Amazonians are more closely related to, Australian Aborigines than to. North American indigenous people. So the idea that the, so the Bering Strait opened, I think there's now evidence coming out that there were uh, mammoths being butchered 130,000 years ago. So people have potentially been on, on the North American continent for, since not the past ice age, but the ice age before that. So very, very long time. Okay. And the Aborigines of Australia were seafaring so they came from the mainland and then they had okay. to they had to sail through the along the um like from the archipelago underneath uh, southeast asia into australia so i think that's about a 100 kilometers 60 kilometers something something like that so it's a long ways okay. and so then they sailed from australia to the amazon and from the Amazon. So this is a this is a part of their mythology is that the gods sailed them across the the big water, the big body of water. So across the Arctic. No, which ocean is that? From Australia to uh to the Amazon Central then. America or more uh southern. Yeah, so I think America. that's Atlantic or Pacific. Pacific, thank you. It is the Pacific. Sure. Pacific, Atlantic. Yeah. yeah. So, so they sailed across the Pacific, and a part of the the mythology is that the gods sailed them across this ocean, and essentially set them up, and then they gave them the they gave them the the instructions to create ayahuasca, and they told them that that was their that was okay. their phone to them. So that was the lifeline to the gods, was this drug that they created. So they said that the this this the spirits of the forest gave them the drug. So Graham, Han Graham Hancock talks about how he thinks that there's a, an ancient civilization that has put sleeper cells into all of these different other civilizations and it all comes out and becomes manifest in their architecture and their, yeah. their mythology. And so he thinks that 
there was a a group of highly intelligent there's a highly intelligent culture that fared these people across the sea and put them in this place yeah. and then told them what to do now and, and another part of ayahuasca is that the two plants required are from such a different regions in the amazon that it would be almost impossible to stumble along what happened because no. you have to you have to take a root that has dmt but there's a enzyme in your stomach that yep. breaks down the dmt product and so you have to take a leaf from a different region of the amazon and you boil them together into a herb and there is a molecule in the leaf that inhibits the enzyme in your stomach which then allows for the dmt to manifest its psychedelic properties so unbelievable yeah pretty amazing that they knew how to do that yeah just so complex and so now from a, so that's my that's the that's the amazonian now yeah proto proto indo-european which is now the most common language i think 50 percent of the world speaks a indo-proto-european derived language so yeah. that's, that's a, yeah that's like the things that sent from that are latin germanic greek Indian, like Hindu, yeah, uh, Arabic, all of these, all of these languages stem from the same yeah. root parent. And something that Murarescu talks about is how the likelihood that all of that came from Gobekli Tepe, which is one of the oldest archaeological sites. It dates yeah. back to about three, thirteen thousand BC. And yeah, very old. Yeah, so so he was trying to figure out whether they had their own psychedelic brew and whether there was a relationship between the likelihood of a culture surviving or a language surviving and their their relationship to psychedelics in religion. So maybe you could say that the likelihood of a religion or a language or a culture surviving was increased by its ability to have religious experience. And so from Quebec Tepe, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about Indo-Proto-European. I don't, or Proto-Indo-European. I don't think anyone really does. That became the language associated with the, the Aryan. So that's kind of where the Nazis got that idea from was the original language, the most survival oriented yeah. language and then that being the superior language kind of thing. But I, I digress. So the idea is that that, language spread out into so india has soma which is an, another psychedelic and then through through the through greece there came i don't know how to pronounce it it's it's kukoin something like that it's k-u-k-e i think you got it oh okay and so that's a another brew that is supposedly psychedelic in some sense so it went from so as i said earlier horus to l to persephone and persephone is the greek goddess of the not the underworld but she was pulled down to the underworld by hades uh, to be his wife and then in the in the iliad um, the hero goes down into the underworld to recover persephone and as he's coming out, mm -hmm. he, he looks back at her and then that puts a curse where she has to be in the underworld for a third of the year. 
which is also interesting because in Hindu philosophy, the, the cycles of the world run in a pattern of two to one where you're, you're in light two times out of the year or two thirds of the year and you're in darkness one third of the year. Okay. So I think that's an interesting relationship between the two. But this whole idea that psychedelics were a means to enter the underworld or enter the afterlife and meet the, the gods essentially and come back with experience. So there were, there were, there were lots of over, over time it became, it became Dionysus was the, was the Greek God of wine, but it wasn't necessarily yeah, wine yeah. in Greek. It's pharmacoque. I think I got that right. I hope so. So it's the word is actually, it's, it's like pharmatech. It's a, it's a pharmaceutical. So it's more of a drug than wine specifically. So there was an old Greek retreat where you'd go and drink this thing and then come back and be a kind of different person. So it was something that Pythagoras went to and Plato and all of these other Greek philosophers all went to this place and took this drug. And over time, it becomes more and more of an initiative rite where you go and initiate yourself into this, this Dionysian cult that was taken over by Persephone's. And what Murescu tries to look into is whether that over time became a part of Christianity and the religions of Christianity. And he looks at the, the Testament of John, the, the New Testament Gospel of John, and he sees all of these parallels between Dionysus and Jesus. And so that was his, uh, that was his exploration was whether what psychedelics have done over Western society and into other societies as well, such as the Amazon and whether those experiences are something that helps to essentially develop a, a better community. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I I haven't heard about it in that extent, but um, I I kind of I kind of know where that comes from, and I I I, mean, I just really got to pee, man. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, yeah. Sorry, that was really unprofessional. No, 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 dude, man. I I uh, I did a lecture like in that lecture that I did. I had to, the first few times I practiced it. I had to figure out how to drink less water because I had to pee at the very end every single time. But no, yeah. no, you're all good. Yeah, I had like three cups before this. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I just, I'm going to preface this by saying I'll probably jump around a little bit. Okay, one more, one um, more thing that I want to touch on really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So one, one more thing. So Mushrooms also came from Mexico and were only discovered in about the 1950s to 60s. And mm -hmm. the woman that showed the guy, so I think it was two guys went down into Mexico and found this woman that then showed the mushrooms. And she was essentially excommunicated from the group for showing yes. anyone what, what these things were because they were so sacred to them. And you can also find it. So, and then now I'll give a little bit of a chemical breakdown as to what these different substances had the potential to actually hold. 
So I'm not sure about Soma in India. I know that the or Rescu talks about the Dionysian cults being uh, somewhat of an ergot mold. So LSA comes from ergot mold. LSA can then be synthesized into LSD. So that's the psychedelic component there. Obviously, ayahuasca is DMT. And I think DMT gets released from the pineal gland during sleep, which creates dreams. I'm yep. not 100% sure about that. That's correct. Okay, thank you. Oh, that's and correct. Something like peyote or San Pedro, those are, those are the, the chemical compound found in those is mescaline. So that's the drug that... Yep. That's the drug that Huxley took when he wrote The Doors of Perception. So that was his psychedelic compound. And also further it's into almost, Huxley. Yeah, it's almost a deliriant. Mm-hmm. And then further into the Huxley realm, when he wrote Brave New World, he used Soma as the, the psychedelic that made everything. It made people feel at ease, okay, with everything that was going on in their lives. And then, so that's a connection back to the Indian psychedelic. And then... Obviously, psilocybin is from magic mushrooms, which were discovered in Mexico. So it's interesting that these things, what's the word? It's, it's, a, it's a form of evolution. It's um, concordant evolution. I think that might be the word, but it's when things... Oh, convergent. Convergent, convergent evolution. Thank you very much. Yes. Convergent evolution where things will evolve in different places to essentially do the same thing. So we have all of these. So an, ex, an example of that would be mangroves, which are ocean bordering vegetation that, yeah. that end up um, filtering salt water and give fresh water. So those evolve in tons of different places without any direct relationship to each other. And so humans have somehow managed to find a bunch of different psychedelics that have evolved on their own and even into increasingly fascinating means of ingestion, including uh, reindeer pee in the Nordic countries because the reindeers will eat the Amanita muscaria and then they break down the potential harmful products of that and then people will harvest their pee and drink that. Yeah, there's a, there's been a lot of, a lot of cultures that... Um, a lot of polytheistic cultures for sure. And I don't know about how many monotheistic ones that have relied on, on psychedelics um, in their rituals and that played a part in their religion as well. The Vikings certainly are one of them. They, they, they loved their psychedelics, their mushrooms uh, as well. When they, when they came over to uh, England, when they kind of settled there, Sorry, my internet is not good. No, that's okay. Uh, the last thing that I heard was you you said that when the Vikings went to settle England. Yeah, so when the when the Vikings went to settle in England and stuff, and, and back in the Nordic uh, areas, such as uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, what have you, uh, with the reindeer pee, but they, in England, they, uh, I can't remember the strain, but there was a, there's psychedelic mushrooms that grow there, and they, um, they involve that in their practices as as well and uh i think there's just a lot of evidence of psychedelic use throughout a lot of cultures like you said and i think that it it is quite possible that it is a lot older than we give it credit for because when you said 
mushrooms were discovered in Mexico in the 50s that they were, I guess they were discovered by the modern day West right. in the Sorry. 50s. Colonially discovered, I should, I yeah, should preface the, the that. Colon- it is a very ancient practice in mm-hmm. these indigenous cultures for sure. And it could have its roots earlier than Gobekli Tepe as well. And in ancient Egypt too, I think there there's some evidence of psychedelic use there too, especially with the Eye of Horus. I was going to say that was that was the the Horus I was talking about. Yeah, and just how how similar it looks to the pineal gland and stuff there. Mm-hmm. So it's anecdotal evidence, but they they are starting to think that they had to have been at least aware of something going on because of a substance at least and. Um, I don't know about how much of uh, a lot of what Graham Hancock says does hold a lot of water, but it is certainly interesting um, at the very least, especially with those, those ancient travelers from Australia. Yeah, I definitely have to and take I know, what he says with a grain of sand. Exactly. Of it, it's, it's super interesting. Mm-hmm. It could hold some water, but it, it hasn't really stood up to science yet. Maybe with more evidence later it has, but or maybe it won't. I haven't done too, too much further research into him other than what he has said. But if it's true that uh, there were some form of more, more advanced culture, like uh, from the Australian uh, indigenous people, which I think is, there's certainly evidence that there were, uh, they were a little more advanced too, because there are cave drawings there uh, found in Australia that predate the earliest known cave drawings that were found. And I think, I think they were actually found in England as well. They, these drawings predate them by four or five, 6,000 years. I can't remember. Um, but there are undeniably interesting similarities between ancient cultures that were very spaced out from each other. And these similarities in what, how they, they've, constructed things like pyramids and walls as well as to the contents of their their hieroglyphs and i you know what what caused that where was this cross-cultural cross-pollination you know how did this happen you know the uh, the temples in peru um in guatemala in mexico they all look the same they all have the same blueprint and why is that? And then they uh, they all have the same kind of beak-faced god holding a bag in in their hieroglyphs too. And it's just it's certainly interesting to think. And maybe we don't know why, but we could definitely speculate that psychedelics may have played a role in this because maybe a cataclysm like the the Younger Dryas and a Great Flood did happen. And a lot of this this uh, knowledge before this cataclysmic event was lost. But all psychedelics really need to grow is moderately temperate climate and oxygen. So it's only a matter of time before a civilization rediscovers the properties of the, these things, whether it be by accident in the Salem witch trials or, or through uh, descended knowledge or or what have you, but I think it's it's definitely fascinating to to think about the role that psychedelics could have had on a, on a lot of a lot of these cultures, 
uh, especially with that divergent thinking I was thinking about, it just makes people so much more aware and they think so much differently that it, uh, it certainly has the potential to shift a paradigm or, or shift a cultural understanding uh, of something because they, they just kind of hit you that hard and uh, they hit you that abstractly and that, that differently, I guess uh, you could say. So there's a lot of exciting research coming out of uh, the ancient psychedelic world and, and modern psychedelic world now, but that certainly is fascinating to think uh, that it could have influenced all world religion. I haven't, or, or uh, the ones you, you have mentioned at least, I think that's very fascinating and something that, that could, should be taken a little more seriously because um, it's definitely akin to a lot of the experiences people um, exclaim to have seen on, on psychedelics. I know when I, when I was doing research on them, uh, they did a pretty big meta study over 10 years or whatever. I can't remember who they were. It might've even been a McKenna brother, one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but somewhere close to 80% of the, the subjects who are taking the test are, are part of the research exclaimed their first psychedelic trip as the most significant moment of their life. Uh, one of the most profound experiences of their life. And, and even 10 years after they still just, they remembered how deep of an, an impact that it had. And I don't know, I could speculate forever, but it, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It, it's, it's just amazing. Just the, the, what, what they can do. Yeah. I wouldn't call psychedelics drugs because they kind of have the opposite effect, but definitely, yeah. definitely amazing. It definitely changes our potential perspective on drugs. I, for a while now, I've thought about drugs not necessarily as a, a substance with a negative connotation, but the things that you put into your body. So the food that you eat yes. could be a drug and things that, things that alter yeah, or enough. impact your neurochemistry and your physiology. I, the, the paper that you're referring to is a Roland Griffith paper where he, the, the meta studies looking at, like, like you said, it's asking people where you would rank this in your experiences. And the majority yes. of the people ranked it within the top five experiences of their life. And that includes experiences such as the birth of a child, wedding days, things, things like that. So it's a unbelievably consequential experience. And it has vast yes, impacts. Undeniably. One, one more thing I want to... The, the Murr Rescue Research is, I think, a good start. He's definitely... He, he's very cautious with what he says is that he's... He's actually never done psychedelics, interestingly enough. He wanted, okay. to do, he wanted to do all of his research without doing psychedelics so that he had a more objective look into things, which I thought was admirable. Fair enough. Yeah. That is and, very, yes. Yeah. And... So he's, he's pretty careful with saying that it's not, not all of this is conclusive. There's now more research being done by archaeochemists where they're able to go in and take, they'll, they'll take terracotta that was supposedly held sacraments and they'll actually analyze what substances were held in there to understand what was, what, what people were actually drinking. So there's some cool evidence in there. Fascinating. Yeah. More on the, the cultural mythos perspective, there's a, there are very cool similarities between the 
a indigenous band in the Mississippian River Basin where they there's a so there's a hand and it would be the same as Orion's belt so the wow. yeah so it's the it's the same constellation as Orion's belt and in the center is the eye but it's not actually an eye it's a portal into the netherworld and that's a part wow. of the yeah that's a part of the mythos there and the, it's the same thing in Egyptian mythology where it's Orion's belt and you enter Orion and that's a part of the the Horus psychedelic sacrament if that was a wow. thing back then so yeah very interesting how those cultures overlap to the extent of their astrology mm-hmm yeah, the, the astrology is a, a, another uh, really fascinating piece of history cross-culturally because just how advanced and how, like, to the day, hour, second, mm-hmm. some of the, the old clocks and, and uh, or monuments for time exactly were, like in ancient Egypt, you know, where they had the Eye of Horus looks like the pineal gland, and they call it the all-seeing eye. Definitely super interesting because when pineal gland stimulated by DMT, people have explained it as something completely transcendent and they're aware of the whole universe and their place in it at the same time. But then just the pyramids are their own marvel uh, outright, but just uh, as as calendars as well, the uh, the helical rising of Sirius over over one of the pyramids so the star Sirius rises directly above one of the pyramids every 365.25 days. Mm-hmm. And then in Tikal in Guatemala, um, where that mine, that's where that mine calendar 2012 stuff came. Mm-hmm. All it was was uh, the resetting of the calendar and moving on to a next age. Uh, I can't remember the, the details. But uh, the calendar itself is actually a giant pyramid. And they count the shadows uh, that come off of it. So it's kind of uh, grained. It's like a big step that has like three or four other cuts in it. And how they determine the day and the month or whatever is just how much shadow goes down each step. Like I think if it's uh, one big step, then if it covers one whole big step, that's four months. If it Mm -hmm. covers half of it and two little ones, that's like, two months etc and that it's just it's just incredibly fascinating like how did how did they they know this mm-hmm. um and I'm, I'm not speculating aliens are absolutely anything because i think we should give a lot a lot more respect to these ancient uh cultures uh they were they were much more aware of certain things uh than we are even today and and that's entirely possible that it could be because of how prominent uh, psychedelics were in a lot of their religious and cultural practices and I I think that's just fascinating and just the the uh, conclusions they were able to make based on that and and how they understood the world before even stepping into that realm certainly would have altered how they saw the world coming out of that realm in ways that are different and then more different than to how we see it today. Mm-hmm. Just with it, like we wouldn't be able to decode it or understand their perception at all, but we can see the fruits of that labor and 
it's just amazing, just flat out amazing. But that's kind of all I know is in far as uh, ancient cultures go. I, I'm most of my research was just on uh, psychedelics and, and modern mental health issues as we understand them and, and some forms of addiction, but mm -hmm. it, it's still just all across the board. It, there's never not been one study that I haven't been like, haven't not been like, damn, that's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's very cool. It's very, very cool. I'm uh, I'm excited for future research to come out and, Maybe you and I can talk about that again in the future. But for now, I think that this I is a love good conclusion to. to the conversation. Yeah, there, there are definitely a few other archaeological and architectural uh, similarities between different places in the world, can, uh, similar to Serpent yes. Mound in Ohio and mm -hmm. Anchor Wat. The, the way that they're laid out are very similar. So maybe you and I can get back on and talk about these things again sometime. But... For now, I think that this I is a good place to. To, to end off. Thanks a lot, Owen. I really appreciate you coming Sounds on. Good. I think this was a, a good conversation and I hope that it helps people to understand addiction a little bit better and then towards the end have a little bit of fun with some psychedelic talk. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. This was awesome.